Hey, it's Mistress Carrie reporting for duty from MCHQ for episode 106 of the Mistress Carrie podcast. And before we get to this week's guest, Scott Alderman, I want to make sure that you check out the new Mistress Carrie tank tops that are in the official store at mistresscarrie.com. Just in time for summer. Show off the guns, baby. They feature the badass Devil Horns lightning bolt logo on the front. So if you're going to be going to shows, especially outdoor shows this summer, like the Tattoo the Earth show at the Palladium Outdoors on August 27th, well, you want to make sure that your arms can breathe. So show everybody which way the gun show is and get yourself a Mistress Carrie tank top. Just go to mistresscarry.com. Click shop and you can check out everything. Hoodies, beanies, coffee mugs, stickers, pint glasses, shot glasses, t-shirts, and so much more. And while you're on the website, you can check out my blog, the events calendar that is filled with concerts and events from all over New England, the photo galleries, and so much more. This week's guest on the show, Scott Alderman, is the brainchild behind the Tattoo the Earth Tour. Oh, yeah. You were probably there back in 2000, and it was crazy. Slipknot, Slayer, Seven Dust, Head P.E., Mudvayne, and so many other bands. The tour was notorious. And Scott is the author of a new book called Caravan of Pain, the true story of the Tattoo the Earth Tour. And it's filled with great photos and behind-the-scenes stories. And it comes just as the announcement comes that the Tattoo the Earth Tour is now the Tattoo the Earth Festival, a one-day festival happening at the Palladium Outdoors in Worcester, Massachusetts, featuring everybody from Anthrax and Black Label Society to Hate Breed, At the Gates, Municipal Waste, Enforced, The Red Cord, Crowbar, Bleeding Through, Terror, Overcast, Within Ruins, Spirit Adrift, and more. Tickets are on sale right now, and you can click the link in the show notes of this podcast. I sat down with Scott to talk about the old days, the inspiration for the original tour, the crazy behind-the-scenes moments, pissing off Sharon Osborne, and so much more. So allow me to introduce you to Scott Alderman. Hey, what's up? This is Sully from Godsmack. Strap on those boots, baby, because you are now in the trenches of the war room with the one and only Mistress Carrie right here on the Mistress Carrie podcast. What's up? This is Joe Rogan, and you're listening to Mistress Carrie. I have so lovely, pretty eyes. Hey, this is Brent from Shinedown, and you're listening to Mistress Carrie. Hey, Carrie, go put your brow on, girl. Hey, this is Steven Tyler, and you'll be listening to the baddest bitch in Boston, Mistress Carrie. What's up? This is Aaron from Stan. And you're listening to Mistress Carrie. Hi, everybody. This is Dave Grohl from the Food Fighters, and you're listening to the one, the only, Mistress Carrie. Hey, this is David from the band Disturbed, and you're listening to the baddest bitch in Boston, Mistress Carrie. Hi, Bruce Dickinson here from Iron Maiden. Yes, indeed. Miss Whiplash herself, Mrs. Carrie, is here to um, unchain your brain. Hi, this is Flea from the Red Hot Chili Peppers, and you're listening to Mistress Carrie. This is Dennis Leary. You are listening to my favorite, Mistress Carrie. Hey, this is Corey from Stone Sour, and you're listening to... You have the privilege of listening to Mr. Scary. Oh, God. Oh, yeah. Hello, Scott. Hey, Carrie. How are you? 
I am very well. Thanks for having me on. Thanks for hanging out with me. It was nice to see you a couple months ago at Godsmack. We were able to catch up a little bit. Yeah, it's the first time in a long time. Yeah, and I feel like um, it's kind of like a new era for you because the Tattoo the Earth touring festival is now a, a standalone show. It's kind of, I feel like it's crawling out of the grave like a zombie now. <laughs> Yeah, it's uh, it's a pretty great story, and I've been uh, I've been likening it to uh, the Mummy Returns. Yeah, that it's come out of the ground and it's it's ready to take its rightful place as the leader of the kingdom, or you know whatever, um, and will suck the face off of anybody who gets in its way. <laughs> so that that's how it, it's what it feels like. It literally feels like coming back from the grave in a way. For anybody that doesn't know who you are, you're a, a local mass hole like myself. Yes. Yeah. And you're also the founder of the famed or um, much beguiled Tattoo the Earth Festival that was around in the early 2000s. Legendary yeah. and notorious Tattoo the Earth Festival. Yes. And then recently you actually wrote a book about the festival, which is called Caravan of Pain, the true story of the Tattoo the Earth tour, which you sent me, by the way. Thank you. Sure. When you sat down to start writing this book, I've had a lot of people tell me, that I should write a book about my life and all the craziness. The hurdle to me is day one and the blank piece of paper. Was that what it was like for you sitting down to just, how do you start? Right. You know, I start typically by thinking about it. Um, So by the time I'm ready to sit down with a piece of paper, I I have an idea of what I want to do. And that thinking about it could take months or a year. So what happened with this is I had written a a memoir about my early crazy drug New York days and published that in 2000. And I was, you know, was wondering what to do as a follow up. And it was the 20th anniversary of Tattoo the Earth. And I thought I'd do one of those like oral history articles where you interview the bands and people who were part of it and then try to get it into Loudwire or, you know, something. And as I was doing that, I realized that I had a book, that there was enough meat there and the story was was deep enough that I could write a book about it. And uh, I just started writing it out and sketched it out. And I think the 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 hurdle for me in writing, it took me a long time to write my first book, is that everybody starts thinking about the finished product before they put it down. And I have a very analytical mind. So I usually start out with things like an Excel spreadsheet and chronologically just lay the thing out, you know, and that's sort of just to get an idea of it. And then maybe what are the chapters? How do I want to pace it? And then sit down and start to write it. Um, uh, I thought about it for 20 years. Well, not <laughs> you know? only thinking about the chapters, but you're also thinking about chapters like cocksuckers and copycats. Yeah. The vomiting demographic, <laughs> the jockey shower, Wisconsin death trip, obviously a note to Static X. Like yes. the chapters uh-huh. have amazing titles. Thank so you. it's like if you're going to work on putting this book together, each chapter has to kind of have its own identity. That's a lot of meat to sift through. Yeah. And that's, uh, you know, in many ways, I wrote the back copy of it first. I start with the hundred word description, like the elevator description to get a sense of what it is. And then as I'm writing it and my wife is really helpful with this. And, and I, I thank her for really guiding the book because when I first started writing it, 
the the music business as we know is just a terrible place and, and <laughs> tattoo the earth really had a bad time of it and i did and you know the whole thing um and and when i first started writing it i was getting into the minutia of the music business and and sort of settling my grievances and my wife is like there's nothing sadder than an old man trying to settle his grievances no one wants to read about that no one care and i and i immediately i immediately changed direction and and sort of did it from a place of kindness and i think that comes across in the book and it it, it just changed my attitude towards it you know and one of the things i notice with a lot of the interviews that i do too whether they be with military interviews or whether they're, um, you know, like uh, at tech interviews or even band interviews, most of the people that are going to read the book, most of the people that are going to listen to my interviews are not part of that business or that part of the business. And so if you get too deep into the weeds, you're all of a sudden losing a lot of the people that aren't even going to understand why that pissed you off or what the problem was. And so you kind of got to be able to explain things in a way where people go along in the journey with you. But then at the same time, like you don't just want to have a revenge book. We want to look back at the good times we had because I had a great time at the Tattoo the Earth Festival. Yeah. uh, You know, when I first I, I thought about writing this book 20 years ago when I pulled the plug on it. And I'm glad I didn't, because that definitely would have been sort of like oh, a yeah. better music business book. And this was and I just and it was just sort of like that 20 years of thinking about it came out first. And then the second draft was just completely different. And each draft, I just, you know, I just led with kindness is what I wanted to do. Your wife um, gave you very sage advice. She's pulled me out of the abyss uh, <laughs> on so many occasions. There's a lot uh, of I've done a lot of interviews on the show. Uh, you know, guys like Dee Snyder, Alice Cooper, very long, successful marriages. There are got to be some guys that listen to my interviews and go, damn it. Am I supposed to say nice things about my wife too now? <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, she was on the tour with me. I mean, she's uh, she's I always say she's a brilliant woman. Her years of doing stupid shit with me, notwithstanding, you know, <laughs> Um but uh, yeah, so she really, and then I had a great editor and, and, and it just, you know, we got, I think, to the, the gist of the story, which is kind of that it's a vision quest. And I think it's got enough music business stuck in there that people will find it interesting just the way it works. How do you get a festival off the ground? What was the what was it like in 2000? Because it's so completely different. Now oh, in yeah. So many ways in the infancy, the Internet and just with everything else. Yeah, there's no way that you could be operating in the same world you would be now. Yeah. And, you know, I haven't done a show in 20 years. When I got out of Tattoo the Earth and pulled the plug on it, I did not stay in the music business or the tattoo industry. So it really feels like the last show I did, Bill Clinton was president and I was doing print ads. <laughs> we were faxing our print order into the Worcester Telegram or whatever. We so were having just... to bring these giant mobile units to be able to broadcast live at something where now you're just like, hey, can yeah. you just hook me up with high speed Internet and we can figure it out? Yeah, the whole thing is yeah. uh, the whole thing's changed. Well, to go um, back and to go back and analyze the past, we kind of have to figure out what your journey was first. So, can we go back to your upbringing and and what were you like as a kid, and when did you get like the the hard rock heavy metal bug? You know, um, I'm actually originally from New York, 
So I, I grew up on Long Island. I, for some and, reason, I thought that you grew up here. You're just, uh, you're a transplanted New Yorker. You know, I'm such a mass hole that I've incorporated my New Yorkerness that it created just, you know. <laughs> uh, but I grew up in, uh, I grew up on Long Island and uh, in the 60s and 70s. And I was a crazy kid. I was just freaking bonkers. Um, and, uh, at an early age, I was struggling in a lot of ways. And my first book is about this with my sexuality and, um, that at a time back in the seventies was not a time to be struggling with that. Right. It was a bad time. It was a really bad, dark time. And that's what my first book is about. And I was just a drug addict really early smart, but I got thrown out of two colleges. I was just bonkers, you know, a drug addict and, I got thrown out of college and got a job at a club called The Bayou in Washington, D.C., this great, great rock club that's no longer there. And I found my people. I found a mentor, the guy who owned the club. I found a place where I could be completely myself. And I worked my ass off and became was like a busboy cleaning toilets and then became stage crew. And then I got a job as a road manager for jazz acts and touring and, you know, like very precocious and and bought a, a, a nightclub actually in New York uh, on my 23rd birthday, a jazz club. I was very- You were uh, industrious to buy a place I was in industrious, 23. I was an industrious junkie. And the problem was, is that the more successful, I went from being just a total fuck up, getting thrown out of college, people wouldn't trust me with the remote control, to being the guy on the road with the briefcase with $50,000 in it in just a couple of years. And it was too much because I was still dealing with the sexuality part and kind of living a double life. And the more successful I became, the worse I felt about myself and the worse my drug habit <laughs> became. And, and yeah, the, music sort of, is, the, the music business is a bad place when you're struggling with drugs. Yeah, it's a bad place at any time when you're struggling with drugs. Yeah. And I think there's some... No one went to rehab back then. Now there's at least an understanding and there's support and there are options and, and ways to go. There's that whole sober community. People don't understand what a vanguard um, Betty Ford was. Yeah. Because up until that, it wasn't really a thing. You got put in a mental institution before you got help with an addiction. Yeah, which is basically what happened to me. That By the time, after a couple of years, I was not a good junkie whatsoever at all. And uh, and I just, you know, after a couple of years of just completely destroying myself and my life, I just had an epiphany and I was like, fuck it. I don't care what I am. I'm not going to die. I'm obviously doing everything I can to kill myself and it's not happening. I need to learn how to live in this world. And I just stopped cold turkey wow. uh, heroin. And that was 35 years ago. And I never did it again. Now I still smoke pot. I, you know, that's a whole journey, my sober journey. Yeah. But at the time, I just went back to college. I went to college. I wanted to be a writer and I just changed my life completely. So I've had some jags and turns there. Uh, and somehow, you know, I, I was going to Columbia University and I wanted to be a poet. I went to graduate school and I just got sidetracked and ended up on Wall Street for five years and running a company in New York, wearing a suit and tie. I didn't even own a suit until I got this job. And then uh, I had the idea for Tattoo the Earth, uh, which came to me as like an epiphany. I had just gone through just this 
terrible time where, you know, my mother died, my mother-in-law, who was very young, got sick, my godson got cancer. Uh, we took this company public and I made more money than I'd ever made. You know, every major stressor you can have in your life, bought a house, this, you know, my best friend betrayed, just like a Shakespearean. And I was just losing it, you know? And out of that came Tattoo the Earth. I was getting tattooed by Sean Vasquez. And that's why I, I, in the book, I know it's November 18th, 3.45 p.m., 1998, because he was tattooing me. And I was just like, Tattoo the Earth. I want to put on a big event. I want to put on the biggest freak show ever. And from that moment that I had the idea, I never stopped talking about it or thinking about it, trying to make it happen until it happened. So it really was a, a vision quest. And I hadn't been in the music business for 10 years. I'd been out of the music business. I just started going to shows again with my wife. She took me to see Smashing Pumpkins and, you know, different bands. But I was out of the music business and not in the tattoo industry in any way. And I just had this idea and I was going to fucking do it. It's like the first person that thinks like peanut butter and bananas are going to taste good together. You know, it's like it doesn't make any sense. And then you try it and you go, oh, like obviously tattoo artists and heavy metal go together like you know, peanut butter and yeah. jelly or whatever, but it, it takes somebody to go, well, can we, can we make this work? Yeah. And, uh, and that was, and you know, the show when my original idea for the show was more of a mainstream with like Aerosmith and things like that. Cause that's how I grew up with classic rock. Right. I mean, I completely lost my mind uh, when I was 14 and hit puberty and started smoking weed and the stones and the who just set me off on this wonderful road to ruin. I've been on for like, <laughs> 50 years, you know, a long time. Um, I typically am not like Slayer, the bands that were on it are not bands that I'm typically into. I like Tool, I like, you know, heavy music, but like real death metal, it just wasn't my thing. But I realized early on, it didn't matter what I want. Right. I'm a 40 year old guy. I'm not selling tickets to me. What do the kids want? And after doing sort of, I called it research for a year and a half of trying to get out there and they wanted Slipknot. They Slipknot was that hard band. And then I stood on stage with Slipknot and watched them. And I'm like, you know, this isn't doing it for me. I need a melody. I grew up, I just saw Paul McCartney a couple of days ago. I need a melody. But I get the fuck you angst of it. I If I was 16, I'd be in the pit. Yeah. I got that part of it. I got that with Slayer. It didn't move me like that, like, you know, other music does. But I totally got that. And that was my connection to it. Um, and to the kids is that this is what they want. They want Slipknot. They want a cool shit, you know? Yeah. And, uh, and we gave it to them. So that was just, you know, a lot of that was just pure luck. You brought up the Smashing Pumpkins. I remember seeing them on Lollapalooza. Is Lollapalooza like the original when it comes to touring festival? Because obviously there are festivals, right? I mean, there was Woodstock, all of these kind of one-off yeah. things. But to be able to pull it off and put it on the road is a completely different thing altogether. Does Perry Farrell and Lollapalooza kind of get the credit for that? I think so. And Lilith Fair. Yeah. Uh, they did that very successfully for a couple of, for only like three years. Yeah. The interesting thing is when I was pushing this 20 years ago, well, now 25 years ago almost, you know, my idea was like a Woodstock because that's what I grew up with. You know, that's the event I missed. I was too young for it. That was the iconic event. So I thought of it as a three-day event. When I started trying to get Tattoo the Earth off the ground, people were saying, no, 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 no. Three-day events don't work. You don't want people sleeping over. If the weather's bad, if you have force majeure, you've got problems. It's got to be a tour. 
And that's when I shifted gears. Now it's the complete opposite. Everything is a three-day event and not there aren't any tours left. So it, it completely shifted. And I think Woodstock 99 scared people to death about doing those types of shows in alternative venues. Yeah, it's uh, I watched that documentary and I feel bad because I went to Woodstock 94 just for fun with a bunch of friends and was at Woodstock 99, but was there working with the radio station. But we kind of went guerrilla style. Because for anybody that may not know about the radio wars of, of Boston back, you know, in the 90s, um, the our rival at WAF, where I worked, was WBCN, and they had corporate ties to Woodstock. So because of their parent company, they had access to backstage bands and broadcast. We went guerrilla style, where we got our own RV, we parked with the fans, we pulled the favors with the bands, and we just went there full-on guerrilla style. Nice. Ended up breaking the story of the riots at the end, but we were so prepared, not only because we had an RV, but because I had been to Woodstock 94 and was kind of prepared and knew what to expect, that when I watched that documentary on Woodstock 99 and how horrible it was for some people, I felt bad because I had a blast. Right. Didn't have any problems at all and was out there in the thick of it until the riot that night. And we really started to go, okay, are we even going to be safe here? But yeah. I had no idea that so many people were having such a hard time. Yeah, I think, well, at those big events, I think that happens all the time. You can look at Altamont. Right. Most people had no idea, but the band saw it. Right. <laughs> but the people who were just 10, you know, 10 slots back didn't see it and had no idea. Then it was a crazy show. Um, so with those big shows, I mean, that was my fear in doing these shows, especially in alternative venues, is someone dies at one of your shows, you do something, and it almost happened to us, the stage caught on fire uh, from Slipknot's Pyros. So that was always one of my fears, that you're asking people to come, 20, 10, 20, however many people, and you're doing it in alternative venues. And that was the problem with Woodstock, you know, 99, is it was in an airfield. Yeah. You just got people open concrete. No shade. It was so hot. Blood biscuit and like rage against the machine. And I think it's people are going to lose their marbles. I mean, you know? look at just what happened recently at Astro World. I mean, you talk yeah. about different perspectives. There were people that were cheering on the music and had no idea. And then there were the people, yeah. and you see the cell phone video begging for the staff to stop the show because they could yeah. see what was going on. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's that dichotomy. That always hit me the most on 9-11 because just a few days after that in New York, if you went above 14th Street, all the restaurants were open. Right. The city opened up again and people were sitting there at cafes and shopping and doing things and just literally a half a mile away was yeah. this, you know, but I think people don't know. They move on They're You know, um, it's the interesting thing of crowd dynamics, but it was, an, it, it, they were thinking about it back then. Yeah. That you don't want to bring that many people together for a couple of days where they're going to sleep over, where you have to get them bathrooms. But that's now completely changed. And um, the fan base that you're talking about, right, the people buying the tickets that you referenced, if you're trying to sell tickets to teenagers, they don't have the ability to travel to a festival like Welcome to Rockville in Daytona or yeah. Rock Lahoma or whatever. you got to bring the show to them. Yeah. They're getting dropped yeah, off by their parents. No, absolutely. And that's one of the great things about this is that like on the Instagram account, I'm just getting all of these like emails from people like, why didn't you play Atlanta in 2000? Like 20 years ago was the same guy when he was 16 asking me the same question. Yeah. 
you know, just they they care so much. It's just been really kind of poignant. And, and a lot of people saying that was their first show. I skipped school or my parents took me and they went to a casino and left me at the show for eight hours. I was 14. Every story that comes out of Tattoo the Earth from that tour is someone somehow they lost their shoes. They lost their ride. They got a concussion. They got hit in the face. They got more wasted than they ever got. You know, everybody's no one has just, oh, I went and it was just a great show. It was like. It was my first show. It was the greatest show. I got bloodied. I, you know, it was just one of those kind of events. I got so drunk with the lead singer of Head P.E. And Craig, the the sample guy from Slipknot, the guy with all the nails in his head, yeah. we were drinking vodka and orange Pedialyte. Yikes. And because Pantera famously told everybody, we'll drink Pedialyte to get over the hangover because they were so good at getting over hangovers. But yeah. Pantera said, drink the grape. And we didn't have any grapes, so we were drinking the orange. And then somebody was like, well, if you're going to drink the Pedialyte to get over the hangover, just put the vodka in it. <laughs> and then you can just stay hydrated while you get drunk. And that seemed like a good idea at the Tattoo of the Earth Festival. That's executive thinking. Yeah, absolutely. That's, that's absolutely executive thinking. When I worked with the jazz guys a long time ago, they used to drink scotch and milk. Oh. A lot of them did. Milk and whatever they were drinking. They just felt that the doctor told them you get an ulcer, you need to drink milk. So they're like, okay, let's put the milk in my scotch or my whiskey. Oh, my God. No osteoporosis yeah. there, but God, yeah, yeah, liver. Exactly. I know. I so know. we talk about Lollapalooza and we talk about Lilith Fair kind of being yeah. the ones that kind of set the stage, pardon the pun, for these touring festivals. And then, of course, famously, OzFest kind of takes it to the next level. Yeah. And not only does it successfully, when you're starting as Ozzy, right, there's automatic credibility there. There's automatic pull to be able to get bands, Sharon's managing other bands. Um, and it became this amazing springboard for younger bands to come off the second stage and be able to work their way up year after year to the main stage. And OzFest was kind of the touring festival. So when you're trying to come up with Tattoo the Earth, you are now cast in this tragedy as the pariah. <laughs> yes, exactly. And like I said, when I originally had the idea, I wasn't thinking metal. Right. But then when we decided that we wanted to go, because you think back 20 years ago, there were not a lot of tattoos out there. Yeah. If you went to a show, even among the bands. Having a tattoo back then was still a, a taboo kind of thing. It was super expensive. So yeah. if you're a young metal fan, like unless you had a friend that was going to do it with a paper clip and some India ink, like <laughs> exactly. having a tattoo was a big deal and you were scared of what your parents might say. Yeah. No, it was illegal when we did it at the show. I mean, we could not tattoo. It was, yeah. it was, oh, no, I remember. It, was still, it was still illegal. And you're right. Uh, the only place people could get them was at uh, these tattoo parties. Yeah. You know, um, so it was just a, a completely, completely different landscape. Um, but then, you know, as we started to focus in on hard music, because those were the bands that I felt really represented what we were wanted to be about. That's when we showed up on Sharon Osbourne's radar. Right. And we had originally met with CAA and had a, one of those like magical meetings with them where they're like, we love this and we'll get you a deal memo. 
And then what happened is the agents for OzFest and the Warp Tour, who were also handled by CAA, got wind of that. Yeah, we can't we can't we can't sludge the Warp Tour because they another pillar. If you're talking about touring festivals, Warp Tour massive. Absolutely, and I don't blame them because they were both in their infancy. They weren't around for 20 years or 10 years. OzFest was in maybe its second or third full year. Yep. Uh, Warp Tour was in their, th- you know, so they were in their infancy. So that kind of put the kibosh on that. And then, you know, we really focused on Slipknot and their agent. And Slipknot's manager, Steve Richards, uh, who's not with us anymore, uh, he had lunch with Sharon Osbourne. And, you know, because Slipknot were the breakout band of the second stage in 99. Yep. And they were going to do, you know, he agreed that they would headline the second stage for 2000. And uh, he went back on his word with her. We doubled the offer and that's how we got Slipknot. And then when Slipknot came, all of those new metal bands wanted to be with Slipknot. So we really decimated OzFest second stage and really pissed off Sharon Osbourne, rightfully so. And that was Steve Richards. You know, he he hung in there with us to do that. But it was a double-edged sword because we had CAA, we had live, you know, Clear Channel, Sharon Osbourne were pissed. And the tour was originally supposed to be 38 shows. And when Sharon Osbourne found out that Clear Channel was promoting 18 of them in amphitheaters, she made them pull the dates. That's why our tour was only like 18 shows in alternative venues routed like it was a blind man throwing at a dartboard. Because <laughs> we pulled 18 shows out of the thing and still did it. So that it was just, you know, it was a double-edged sword. We got this amazing band and we were almost too successful. I, my, my goal was to go under the radar, but when you presented with this band that's willing to do it, you go with it. Um, but we pissed off a lot of people. It's important too to look at the music scape at that time and, and being at one of the biggest, most influential rock stations in the country at that time at WAF, like I was, you know, the, the music scene had gotten the shot heard around the world in the early nineties with Nirvana and smells like teen spirit and the hair metal and all of that, you know, was dead on arrival after that. But then there was this slow transition from grunge, which was a very kind of, um, we're all suffering together. There were a lot of, uh, a, a lot of, you know, Courtney Love, people like that. It was very inclusive. When it came to the fashion, girls were wearing sundresses with combat boots. And then as the 90s went along, there was that shift, right, where Soundgarden and Pearl Jam and all those guys are still big. But then all of a sudden, bands like Tool and Seven Dust and Korn and all of these bands started to bubble up from from underneath. And that was, you know, for, for lack of a more eloquent way to say it, a complete sausage fest. Yeah. Because I'm on the yeah. air at AAF starting in 98 full time as the only woman on the air going to these shows where, you know, it's like going to a rush show and you're like, oh, there's three girls here. Or an Iron Maiden show, there's five girls here. Like, you start going to some of these quote-unquote new metal shows, and it was very hyper-masculine, it was very aggressive, and it was a way to kind of get out that angst that grunge didn't offer to people. I've been a lifelong maggot since the first day I heard Wait and Bleed, the first time I saw Slipknot, like, have loved it ever since, but it's not for everyone. A lot of people yeah. don't understand it. I didn't at first. 
the first time I saw them was at the 930 Club. We went to Washington to meet with them. and I Such hadn't a seen great club. I know, it's a great club. And I was like, whoa, my Lord. And I'd been around the block, and I had just never seen anything like that before. Um, but, you know, they tapped into that. And I always felt, because that was just a year after Columbine, and I remember like Tattoo the Earth was, and I remember standing on stage with someone going, none of these kids are going to go shoot up a school. They're getting it out here. We're giving them a safe, non-judgmental place. Now, there's a lot of elements of that as someone who's, you know, bisexual. There's a lot of homophobia and metal still. Yeah. There was a much more back then. There were no women on the tour. Uh, the two members of Nashville Pussy. Uh, Tracy, the bass player and writer, and my wife, and my and uh, my tattoo production. Like those are the only women on the entire tour working. Like I've noticed that on the tour. Like this is not sort of representative of my, you know. Yeah. But I think that it's evolved a lot over the last twenty years. hundred percent. Feel much more comfortable in that world that I always felt like. I always feel like I'm on the outside here. Um, when you feel like you're on the outside of the outsiders, that's a terrible feeling. Right. You know, so I think it's much more inclusive, and I think that's a good thing. Well, so I there definitely aren't that think more women in in the business playing. Look at them. The, the, look at the amount of metal that's getting generated by women. It comes up all the time. I've talked to everybody from Dorothy and Diamante and Lizzie Hale and Amy Lee, and I mean, it's just it's unbelievable how many women, and not just in the more mainstream rock bands but there's a lot of fantastic metal yeah to the point yeah. where you know you look at somebody like a Lilith czar or whatever or you see a band that has a female drummer or a female bass player it's like it's not even a big deal anymore that there's a woman in right. the band it's not a novelty anymore which coming up in in the you know the the era that you and i are talking about i was always the token girl i was always the yeah. only one around and now it's totally normal that there's all these yeah. women around all the time. Yeah, no, absolutely. And but I, think I did get walked to my car at <sighs> the end of the night at tattoo the earth because some of the guys were worried for yeah. me and they wanted to walk me to my car. I remember that. Yeah. No, you know, uh, you just reminded me, I went to see the Rolling Stones uh, in 2013 and I, I hadn't seen them obviously in like 30, something like this in a long time. And uh, I dropped acid for the first time in like 30 years. I had the best night of my life. It was the show I dreamed of, seeing the Rolling Stones, like my hands on the stage. Except there was an old man. I had a pee eight times. I didn't wear my compression <laughs> socks, <laughs> you know, but it was amazing. And there was this a woman there in a mini skirt, you know, and she's watching and these guys behind her are messing with her. And a bunch of us like confronted them. I'm like, are you fucking crazy, man? You're ruining like, my vibe, man. It's 2013. You're fucking with this poor woman who's yeah. trying to like watch this show. Like it was just incomprehensible. And it was nice that as a group, right. we were all like, everybody just fucking stop and get security. Like she needs to feel safe here. Uh, so I can't even imagine what it felt like in 2000 or when my wife, you know, my wife saw the Chili Peppers at the Palladium in New York, I think, in 1990, you know, and, and ended up with a giant footprint across her face. Well, you, you go know, and watch like, that documentary about Woodstock 99. That's that's the theme of the whole thing was just yeah. the misogyny, the assaults, just this hyper masculinity fueled with anger and alcohol. And and now I think, you know, like I said, it comes up all the time on the show. 
that hard music, heavy music, was kind of driven back underground a little bit. We're the outsiders again, because, I mean, when you got Corn and Limp Bizkit on TRL, you've right. gone mainstream, right? And yeah. now it's kind of been driven back underground. And when we go to all of these shows, we're all the freaks that want to get together. We're the inclusive now, you know? you got a vanguard like Rob Halford that's an openly gay guy that's up there tearing it up. Yeah. You've got all these women out there that are making amazing music that are not a novelty just because they're a woman. And then you've got all of these people, and I give credit to artists like Slipknot that were like, we're all here, so that makes us the same. Yeah. That was always their message, that we're all part of this collective, which is why Slipknot fans get called maggots, because they feed off the host. Like, So in a weird way, that is that self-leveling, equalizing thing that has come out of that very dark time for especially women in metal is that we're all the freaks now. Exactly. You, you're, you're judging me, that yeah. kind of thing. Yeah. And that, that 20 years ago, I really felt that acutely. Yeah. Um, and much less so uh, now, though there's still a long way to go. 100%. And the music is inherently. And, you know, the Stones music was too. The Who. The Who's concerts were, that was really that same. It was just taking it to another level, you know. Um, but rock and roll, and it's especially, I just love that. You know, the Beatles had all female audiences, and the Stones came along, and they were all guys, and they were pissed off. Well, people realize that if you're really going to be successful in rock and roll, you got to have girls there. Yeah. You, you yeah. Finding that delicate balance, right? You talk about the Beatles or Elvis, where it was just screaming girls. And then yeah. it went way far in, like, the 80s, myself included, with Bon Jovi and kind of all of those bands, and then you swing into the late 90s, early 2000s, where, like you said, with the Stones and the Who, it's just all guys all over again. Yeah. And now yeah. it's kind of like we're in this place where society realizes, like, I, I can't tell you how many times I've had conversations about music and the person assumed I knew nothing because just because I was a woman. Yeah. And so now there's been generations of rock fans that have grown up going, um, yeah, she... Like, tell me Lizzie Hale can't play guitar. Tell me, yeah. you know, growing up idolizing a Joan Jett. Tell me Joan Jett's not a rock and roll badass. Go ahead. You, you'll fail. Yeah. I remember seeing Susie Quattro. Oh, yeah. In like 1978, just like Pinky Tuscadera from, from you know. Yes. That was amazing. Yeah. And she had a great band and, you know, and then Joan Jett came along and Chrissy Hind. Some great, great friends. Debbie Harry. Pat Benatar, like the, the people are starting to realize now and you hear artists like when I interviewed Jerry Cantrell, he just wouldn't stop fawning over the influence of heart. And so when you hear bands citing bands with women as inspiration, all of a sudden somebody might go, oh, really? Well, if Jerry Cantrell thinks Nancy Wilson's a good guitar player, she must be a good guitar player. Like, right. younger people have to learn these things because they weren't yeah. alive to see her shredding in the 70s. Yeah, it takes time. Yeah. It's a generational time of, of it changing, and it, it definitely is changing. But, um, I mean, you have to have a constitution. You started, like you said, in this doing this 25 years ago. You had to be a badass. You had to be tough as nails. You had to be willing to take a ton of shit because let a million things go by every day that now wouldn't even be 
you know. Uh, so people, women making that decision to get into acting, like I remember the heartbreaking part of that whole Harvey Weinstein was all the women who got out of the business because they were just so disgusted by it. Yeah. What they would have to do to be able to succeed and how they'd have to compromise themselves and to be on the road with a rock band night after night in different cities all over the country. You have to be made of fucking nails to be able to do that. You have to I be started, a special person. I started my internship at WAF in 1991. And yeah, just in my time... You know, I went by the time AAF went off the air, you know, I had been there 29 years. The world was not the same in those 29 years. No, I know. It's It's crazy. uh, And it's great. We still have a long way to go, but it's it's just just the leaps and bounds. And I just look at, you know, what I was like growing up in the 70s, where there were no resources for people who were dealing with this. I mean, none. Their sexuality, nothing. There were no positive role models. Zero. Every representation in film or TV was of a psychopath. There's a famous book called The Celluloid Closet of just all the gay characters in movies, and 90% of them are criminals and end up in insane asylums. There was no representation. Well, then you looked and at artists like Elton John, who like everybody knew, but he, he couldn't even say it. Yeah. Well, he did. It had hurt him in America. Right. You know, there were no role models on television anywhere. And that part of it, just looking at it now, there's one commercial that blows me away because, you know, I worked, I lived amazingly through the AIDS epidemic in the 70s and 80s and worked at an AIDS hospice uh, in the 80s in New York when everybody died. And we couldn't even get funeral homes to come and take the bodies. Oh, That's the, this is in New York City, in Greenwich Village. So now I'm watching this commercial for, for like an HIV drug. And it's like, go live your best life. And I'm like, oh, my God, it's so amazing. Like, it's just such a difference. And how so many of these, quote unquote, like alternative lifestyles are now just mainstream. That the yeah. world, as as small-minded and simple-minded as it can still be, is a lot more open-minded than it was in a lot of ways. It's safer. Yeah, absolutely. It's still not safe for women out there, but it's a lot safer. It's, it's and getting gay there. People and gay and, people, you know, it's just, it's getting there. It's, it's, yeah. It takes, you know, in some ways it's happened so fast in the last couple of weeks, you know, the last yeah. five, ten years, where it seemed like it had been stalled. Yeah. And that's what Tattoo the Earth was about. It was to the freaks to have a place to go, like I said, without judgment and get their rocks off and hear some music and and get it out of their system and feel like they were part of something. So let's talk about that first year, because in your book, um, you know, you talk about the bands. There's great pictures of, you know, some of the tattoos and some of the artists. And and for me, it transported me right back because I'm like, oh, wait, I remember that guy. He yeah. looks a lot different now, but I remember when he looked like that. Yeah. So talk to me about like the planning stage of it, the first show and when things really started to get nuts. Cause tattoo the earth is infamous at this point. No, absolutely. It was even before the show even started before we didn't know where the tour was going to end when we started the tour, <laughs> the end of it hadn't been, the end of it hadn't been set yet. In fact, if you look at our tour book, it's online. All of the end dates are wrong. Everything got shifted around. We also didn't know what bands were going to show up. Um, Poya was supposed to show up. They didn't. Spine Shank wasn't supposed to show up. They did. Uh, it, it was just a mess from day one. And the first show was a radio show um, in Portland, the radio station there in Portland, Oregon. So they had 
Stone Temple Pilots booked and they bought our show to go underneath Stone Temple Pilots. So it worked out really well for us. Right. They already had their radio show. They bought a whole lineup, even though they weren't really comparable. Um, so that first show went pretty well. Other than the fact was, that Slipknot went on before Stone Temple Pilots. Stone Temple Pilots. So when you talk about like my wife and I love Stone Temple Pilots. Me so too. My wife. So the, the shift of all of the guys pulling backwards after Slipknot finished and all of the women pushing forward to watch Stone Temple Pilots, my wife and I included. Uh, but they worked for the radio show. So we didn't have to deal with a lot of the things that would cause us difficulties going forward. Uh, the next show is when we lit the stage on fire with the pyrotechnics. And, and you know, there was a, a spigot in front of the stage. Uh, and we told them to cut it off at the ground because the kids are going to just break it and you're going to flood this park. We were in a, a residential park and they didn't. And the, the, the field flooded completely. Had they not months. seen 94 of Woodstock? What could happen with unlimited amounts of water? The mud going at the stage was, I mean, Tom Araya got hit in the face with it. It was just terrible. So every show was like that. We couldn't tattoo in New Jersey. We couldn't tattoo in Massachusetts. After the Massachusetts show, we got banned for life. The city of Revere banned us for life. Slipknot and Tattoo the Earth. <laughs> Old ladies were driving around Revere trying to find the party, the source of the music, to get it shut down. Um so every show uh, was like that. We did 18 shows. All of them were disastrous in their way. Six of them were attended well. Six were medium and six really tanked. Uh, we tanked in Texas. We were down there in August and we're playing non-traditional venues. Right. Uh, horse tracks, race tracks, parking lots, rodeos. We're at a rodeo in Texas. It's 100 degrees. <sighs> You know, so these were, it was a tough tour. And this is what happens when you do, we weren't doing the the warp tour alternative venues. Right. Because of the warp tour, you take two, you know, planks of wood and put them between two trucks and that's a stage. Right. We were building two full stages, the whole thing. Um, and doing that in alternative venues is just really really hard and dangerous not only that but you for for anybody that isn't old enough to to know what the tattoo of the earth tour was or and lived in a place where it never came the draw of it was that you had all these amazing heavy bands and then you had some of the most well-known tattoo artists that were on the tour setting up booths that fans could go and get tattoos from some of the world's best tattoo artists. That's what happened during the day. And then obviously all the bands were getting tattooed all night. Yeah. But but having having a sterile, clean environment to get tattooed in a mud pit in a 100-degree rodeo in Texas, not a short order. <laughs> it was horrible. It really was. I don't know if the setup worked well in any location. You know, in Scranton, we were at an amphitheater and it set up really nicely. But then when the sun was at a certain angle, it just cooked everybody Yeah, like you couldn't, you know. And, and it's funny, in Mercedes, Texas, which is right by the Mexican border, uh, they had this big pavilion, concrete pavilion that had like a canopy and running water and electricity. It was literally the best setup we've had for the entire tour. And Sean Vasquez, one of our tattoo artists, was getting ready to tattoo someone on the air, a disc jockey in Texas. 
And uh, all of a sudden there's a flash flood. It hadn't rained. We still, to this day, don't know where the water came from, but it literally just washed everything away. So, and then that night, uh, Slayer's bus got pulled over and they got arrested and Nashville Pussy's bus got pulled over leaving Mercedes. So every show was just, we were lucky to get it around the, the park. Um, and at the last show in Phoenix, it was at the Manzanita Speedway, which looked like a scene at a Mad Max, like flattened cars surrounding it. And here's Slayers playing. And then this sandstorm comes in called a Haboob that basically you can't see your hand in front of your face. It looked like the end of the world. Slayers playing, there's red dust. You know, that was our last show. So every show was a disaster, but we got it around the block and, and everybody had fun. My feelings about the show are very different than the people who went to it. Yeah. It was a freaking nightmare from the minute it started until it ended. I don't know if I've ever been so worried in my life. But people who went, just it's a milestone for them. I had a blast. I'm looking at the day sheet because these are in the back of your book. And for anybody that doesn't know what a day sheet is, it's basically one piece of paper that the tour manager puts together that tells the band everything they need to know. Where and how to get food, where the bathrooms are, where the showers are, what time they need to do sound check, what time their set is, what time their meet and greets are with the fans, what time the bus is rolling out of the parking lot, where the hotel is. Like, it's all on one piece of paper and they're hung everywhere at the venue. So, Saturday, July 22nd, East Boston, Suffolk Downs Racetrack. You've got... Um, let's see. I want to make sure. cold chambers on there. Yeah, they are. They yeah. never showed. They never played. They canceled the week before. It was famous. Downset. Hey, P- head. Pe. Puya. Sepultura. Cold chamber. Seven dust. Slayer. Slipknot. And then curfew. Eight p.m. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Puya didn't show up either. So that there was nothing right in that book. And then the the side stage, because again, stealing a, a page out of kind of the Ozfest, the side stage. Uh, cold, um, UPO, uh, let's see. Mudvayne. Yep. Mudvayne, hate breed, full devil jacket. Um, hold on. Nothing face, systematic, amen, Nashville pussy, curfew 630. No, I know. I know. So you got these shows that get out at eight o'clock and bus call. What time was bus call? It was like two in the morning or something. So then you got these bands sitting around for six or eight hours. No, I know. It was a disaster. Every show was like that. Every show. Well, when we played in Mercedes, we were told in advance uh, that you're so close to the border that they're going to search every bus when you leave, which I took as an affront. We're American citizens doing business in Texas and you're going to, you have the right to search our bus just because we're that close to the border. So we warned all the bands. So everybody basically consumed what they had. And it was the wildest party I've ever seen. Shannon Larkin said it's the, the tattoo of the earth was the most debauched tour I'd ever been on. And that night was just, everybody did like did everything. I put all my shit in Slipknot's truck, knowing full well they're putting all their shit in my truck. Everybody's stashing everything all over the place. But everybody was just completely, I I just never saw anything like it. So, and so when you're doing, and it's all fun and games until people get hurt. And by the end of the tour, you've got riggers who are getting hurt. 
you're working where we're not getting enough sleep. We have to rush to set up the next day because we have these two stages. We're in a rodeo. People are tired. It's dusty. It's hot. And people start getting hurt and people go crazy on the road. You know, so it's not an ideal situation, though. It makes for a good book, I think. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> it, it does. And so that that inaugural tour, right? So you get out there. Tell me some of your favorite moments, not so much the dangerous moments, but the, uh, how did I, like, how am I responsible for all of this moments? (laughs) Yeah, I had, uh, I had a couple of those. The first one in Portland, um, because I had this vision and here it was in front of me like a year and a half later. Yeah. And it was just really uh, surreal and very emotional. And when Slipknot took the stage, um, I was standing on the side of the stage watching them, and they did. Uh, Corey does that thing where he has everybody oh, crouch down. It's unbelievable. And then they all jump up in a, in the the dirt of the horse track, and when he did that, I just fell to my knees, just overwhelmed with emotion, just bawling. Like you know, I helped create that. Like I felt like the the Los Alamos, like the atom bomb. Like I was part of that team that's creating this energy, you know, and I'm really overwhelmed. And my partner puts his hand on my shoulder and says, uh, enjoy it, man. It'll never feel this way again. And he was right. It never felt that way again. And really, the, the, the sublime and good moments were very few after that. Giant Stadium. My wife and I were standing in Giant Stadium like at 2.30 in the morning the night before, just looking around big tattoo the earth banner and i'm like what the fuck and i then still have the t-shirts so, and then sean came from crayhan came from slipknot and my assistant naomi and the four of us just sort of stood there he was like i was in a van two years ago playing clubs and i'm playing john like number two band under metallica at giant stadium it was just one of those really sublime moments and that was really just about it yeah you know Watching the <laughs> watching the rise of Slipknot, you know, I think I did one of their first TV interviews for AAF's Real Rock TV in 99 at Local Bazooka, which was in September of 99 or September of 98, whatever year that was. And all nine members of the band are there and they're sticking their fingers up my nose and I'm trying to interview all nine members of Slipknot and organize them and get a, a word in edgewise and, you know, I sat down with Corey Taylor pre-COVID and we we laughed about how just insane, like he just kept yelling butt gravy in my ear while I was trying to interview <laughs> them. And it's just, and to see now all these years later that a band like Slipknot is still, you know, out on their own Knotfest Roadshow, like stealing a page out of the touring festival and going out there on their own festival tour. It's, it's yeah. unbelievable. It's unbelievable that that main stage that we did of Slipknot Slayer, Seven Dust, Sepultura, uh, Head P could sell out, could do a stadium right now. Oh, yeah. It's bigger than it was 20 years ago. And I had that sense that Slipknot was the, the like their dedication to their fans and vice versa was something really unique. And watching them night after night doing what they were doing in service of that was really powerful. And they really won me over. Like it may not have been my thing, but it was almost like 
like watching a Stanley Kubrick movie. You just need to clear your head and absorb it. Yeah. Because you'll you'll reject it at first because it's too much. And the older you are, the more you'll reject it. But once I stood there a couple of times and took it in, it's like, Jesus, man, this is this is just accept it for what it is. Just accept, stop trying to categorize it, figure it out, just accept it for what it is and just let it happen. Yeah, exactly. And not bring all the judgment and what it should sound like and what it should look like. Um, and so I had those those moments uh, on on the tour with that with them. Seven Dust I always loved. I had yeah, a couple of sublime moments with them and the rave listening to them where I just felt like I was a kid again and the reefers in the air. And, it's a, you know, so I had some moments, but most of it, it was just sitting in the tour bus watching the Weather Channel getting stoned and just like oh, trying to hide from everybody who was after me, you know. Well, you talk about all of these bands, right? And and most of them, not all of them, but most of the bigger bands that were on the Tattoo the Earth tour are still around. And yeah. part of the reason that they're still around is what you're talking about, is that loyalty to their fans, they stayed true to who they are. They always were so giving and loyal to their fans yeah. and made themselves accessible. And you look all these years later and they are still at that level because their fans, even though their fans, some of them are in their 50s now, yeah, stayed loyal because they stayed loyal to them. Yeah, I feel that way about the Rolling Stones. You know, and when I was starting to be like, geez, they're getting too commercialized. They're getting sponsored by Citibank. They're doing this. They're doing that. Then I read that Keith Richards like snorted some of his father's ashes with some coke. And I'm like, that's why I have the tongue on my arm. Oh, my God. <laughs> you know what I mean? And yeah. then the who circle like that's why it's there, because at their core, they're still and that's why they can still be authentic. All they're these celebrating their 60th anniversary this year. It's crazy. Yeah. It's insane. So that that part of it, and seeing McCartney the other night, who's almost 80, and he still sounds great. I mean, he it's played, really. He played 36 songs in the set. I know. I know. I had my son with me, my 14-year-old son, and I wore him out. He's like, geez, this is long. I'm like, I know, but he, the guy's 80. You know, everybody's standing. It was really a, a lot of fun. And um, he's a beetle. Like, that's where you have to look at the 14-year-old and go, look. Yeah. There's going to come a time apart. when you're older that you're going to yeah. be like, I saw a beetle live. Yeah. yeah, that's exactly what I said to him. It's like seeing Mozart. Yeah. Like you're going to, you're going to, and he got it. And we had a couple of really nice moments there, like, hey, Jude, singing along and, and, you know, sort of like my bucket list kind of stuff. When you have a kid, you want to be doing that. But I know whatever he thought of the show, that will resonate with him that he saw this giant because the guy is just, it was, it was really cool. It's one of the best and days all, of my life. It's all old people and everybody's like, you know, just sort of standing there. They're playing help the skelter. I'm, like, I'm getting, you know, and I'm hurting, but I'm like, I can do it. I can do it. You know, because that's a heavy song. Yeah. Help the skelter. When I was a kid, that was like, whoa, man. I mean, you know, you analyze like the birth of heavy metal, right? I just talked to Geezer Butler a few weeks ago and I asked him straight up, like, did Black Sabbath invent heavy metal? And the, the phrase was invented because someone was insulting the band. And that's where the phrase came from in the press. But songs like Helter Skelter, the argument could be made were the the initial bubbling up of metal, even yeah. though the Beatles would never be considered a metal band. But that that was in some of that music. 
Yeah, absolutely. You could look at back at the birth of rock and roll in the 50s and 40s, that same thing happening where it's bubbling through. Yes. There are elements of it. I wouldn't say that's the first rock star, but that's a rock and roll band. The, the woman that I, is a famous guitar player. I always forget her name. But, you know, Bonnie, there, there like, were those, like Bonnie Raitt or no, no, we're much older. Much oh, older. yeah, 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 yeah. Um, but so that's kind of that same it's that same thing. It sort of bubbles. It bubbles through. And I put the who in that category because the who was a heavy band, at least to me. And for the time, yeah, uh, was heavy. And the Stones could be heavy, too. And then Zeppelin and Sabbath followed behind it. But I think there are a lot of bands there that could make the case for really yeah. being a precursor to heavy metal. The Stooges. Yeah, 100 percent. Yeah. 100%, and MC5. there is a lot of overlap when, you know, when you were talking about that, um, not really under like, like not really liking the metal, but understanding where it was coming from. There's a lot of punk in metal, yeah. And there's a lot of the early metal in punk that that same angst. It's the same thread. Yeah, well, that's why to me, uh, My Chemical Romance bridges the two of them perfectly. I really love that band, and I I'm, I, I I fall on the punk side. I love the Ramones growing up and the Sex Pistols, the Who. I mean, that was the stuff that really made me crazy. Uh, and it still does, yeah. You know, but like I said, those the, the thread that goes through it—that's rock and roll, and that doesn't change. If you if you have that in you, it's there till you die. Yeah, hundred percent. Hopefully, when I'm eighty, I'll be at a show trying to <laughs> <laughs> headbang, you know. But um, uh, yeah, and now we're doing it again. This is the insane part: is the tattoo has come back from the grave. I know. I'm so excited. I was so happy when. I found out that it was coming back and in a new way. So the Palladium in Worcester is an old theater that literally everyone has played. It's a famous venue. And when they started having shows outside, it created this whole other venue that, first of all, the first time I saw a show outside at the Palladium, I was like, the city lets you do this? Yeah, because it's loud and it's outside yeah. in the middle of downtown Worcester and it's a lot. Yeah. And the city's cool with it. Yeah. Now it's going to be anthrax at the, you know, in, in the middle of Worcester. Yeah. It reminds me of Tattoo the Earth. I went to the Newfound Glory show there last weekend. It's in a parking lot. It would be just like Tattoo the Earth if the two stages were playing against each other the whole <laughs> night at the same time. But it really had that feel. It's a great setup. Yeah. Um, just a fantastic setup. So tell me about putting the lineup together to revamp Tattoo the Earth because it has a reputation, right? You're taking a chance using the name because people have long memories in this business. So when yeah. you start making phone calls, what's the reaction? You know, um, I, in the 20 years after I pulled the plug, I really never thought about it resurrecting it. I never sat there and said, you know what? I should brush tattoo the earth, the mothballs off, and maybe it's a good time to do it or this and that. And people were always coming out of the woodwork uh, to say they wanted to do something. I, I had no, I had no desire to do it. And when I wrote the book in the back of my mind, I never thought, oh, this could resurrect tattoo the earth. Um, I, I just, I, when I stopped, I stopped. And John Peters got an email from me from like a mailing list and it was in his spam folder about my book. And he's got anthrax and BLS and hate breed booked for the palladium indoors. And he's thinking, hey, maybe we should resurrect Tattoo the Earth and emails me. 
is the last thing I expected <laughs> to happen. Seriously, it wasn't like, I, I don't know, I just, I was done with it. Uh, and since we did, this is before the book even came out, we're talking about the date in August. And now it's just really just mushroomed. It's, it's really like Tattoo the Earth was such a great idea. It's just come back with a vengeance. Uh, people just love, always love the name. Yeah. And the concept, it's got the nostalgia thing going on. And we're we're going to do a tour next year. Are you uh, really? Yeah. The plan is that we're we're working on doing a tour with some really special stuff related to the tattooing, um, something really forward thinking. Uh, so this show is a nostalgia show. It's Anthrax's 40th anniversary and it's been 20 years for Tattoo the Earth. It's really a milestone for people. Um, especially when you get into your late 30s and 40 and you start to hit maybe your first midlife crisis and then <laughs> have these shows, these great memories. Yeah. But next year we want to take out, we want to, we want to, we're going to resurrect Tattoo the Earth and we're going to, we're going to take it out on the road again next year is the plan. So this is all a complete surprise to me. And I'm like, hey man, John is the one who pulled it out. And, uh, and a lot of people in the, in the music business side of it are like, ah, Tattoo the Earth. You know, because it had so it was so messy, um, but the reception has been just incredible for the concept, for the tour, for the stuff we're doing with it. It's really been it's just amazing to have a second chance to do this. The show at the Palladium Outdoors is August twenty seventh. Tickets are on sale right now. The lineup: Anthrax, Black Label Society, Hate Breed, At the Gates, Municipal Waste, and Enforced. When and you we'll, we announced more bands today. Really, the Red Chord. Nice. Their first uh, show in uh, seven years locally. Uh, Bleeding Through, Terror, Crowbar, Overcast. Wow. Spirit Adrift. I think Overcast is Brian from Shadows Falls uh, first band. That's insane. So it's, so we've got the two stages. So we just announced that today. Yeah, so I was going to say, like, you're not putting all those on one stage. No, no, those two stages. Those two stages. So, uh, yeah, it'll be from 2 till 10, 10.30, whenever curfew is. And we're going to have uh, Joe Peterson from Zaza Inc., which is a local Worcester shop. Inside the Palladium, we're setting up the tattoo artists. And we're going to have six tattoo shops in there. The public can get tattooed. We'll have piercing and body painting and henna and all sorts of stuff inside the Palladium. And then the whole festival outside. So it's it's really exciting. The Did you get tattooed on the original tour? I mean, you're surrounded by all these tattoo artists. Did they get you? They did, and it was a mistake. And uh, <laughs> it was a big mistake because I this arm, Bernie Luther, started this in Vienna. And had worked on it a couple of times. So he finished it in Detroit on the tour. And um, I was so sore and having to lug my sore arm around. And it was so hot that even with like a long sleeve shirt on, the sun was baking it. Oh, yeah. Like I really regretted doing it afterwards. Like I wouldn't recommend for a Getting musician. Getting a full like, sleeve outdoors in the sun. Yeah, well, you know, uh, Lejean got tattooed on the tour by uh, Philip Blue, got a chess piece. And played 15 minutes later. And Ryan from uh, Martini from Mudvayne got tattooed by Paul Booth and Philip Blue, a collaborative freeform piece, a giant piece on his chest, and went out and played after it. There's a picture of that in the book. Just, yeah, their endorphins were just like the, just a surreal experience. But as an organizer, I really wished I'd hadn't. But I, I, um, uh, yeah, that was the only one I got on the tour. 
Um, have you heard from any of the original Tattoo the Earth band members since the book came out? Um, what's been the reaction of, of them reading the book? Uh, the reaction has been really fantastic. Shannon uh, Larkin really said he, he loved the book and it, it captured it. It was true. Um, I think for the musicians, it holds a really special place for them, too. It was Slipknot's first big tour. It was Derek Green from Sepultura, his first tour leading Sepultura. Um, there was a lot of there was a lot of really good things. So it holds very special. But they all say the same thing. The catering sucked. They, <laughs> both stages played against each other. Like when you ask them their recollections, it's going to be the heat, the catering, the, you know, all that stuff. But there was this sense that we were doing something for the first time, that we were in this together. Yeah. Um, and no one, people were complaining, but if you ask in retrospect, it was sort of like, they all say it was an honor to be out there. And it, it, it jump-started so many uh, careers. Oh yeah. Well, that uh, military phrase. And, and behind the scene. That military phrase, embracing the suck. Yeah, you know yeah. that that you all suffered through the pain together, so therefore you have fond memories of it is kind of hilarious. Time heals all wounds. Absolutely. Well, you know what is a if you go on the road, it has to, or you'd never go on the road again. Right. You know. Yeah. Um, so it was an amazingly difficult tour, uh, and then we couldn't get the second year out, which was, uh, you know, a crusher. Yeah. Um, and that was where the double-edged sword came back and cut our heads off because we had. Sharon Osborne, CAA, and Clear Channel determined to take us out. Yeah. And we put offers into Marilyn Manson and Slipknot, and they just doubled each offer. They own every amphitheater. They keep us out of every amphitheater in the country. They own all the radio stations and all the billboards. If they don't want you to go out, you can't go out. Right. And, and that's kind of what happened. A lot of people don't understand when, you know, when it comes to the deregulation of a lot of this industry. And it was something that Pearl Jam was fighting back in the Ticketmaster days. It's that, yeah. you know, as a musician, as an artist, as a promoter like yourself, you know, you piss off one person and your career is over. If yeah. that one person is connected in a way that they can just kill your career if they feel like it. Yeah, we were just too successful that first year. And my partner, we just strategically made, we stuck with Slipknot and their manager, Steve Richards, who double-crossed us. And I was like, he did this to Sharon Osbourne. Why isn't he going to do it to us? Yeah. And we, gave, we were offering cheap. them like 20% of the tour, all future tours, whether they played or not. I don't even think he took the offer to them. He was just using us now as leverage to get a bigger payday from OzFest, which is what he did the year. You know, So it was very short-minded thinking. Um, but you're at the you're at the whim of of so many different things when you're trying to do something like this, and that's where the odds of me getting the first tour off the ground were probably so astronomical. I never even entertained there couldn't be a second year. Yeah, like I thought if I got it off the ground, I'd go over this. So it was really shocking when we weren't able to do that, and I felt bad because I had so many people who were into it and it put so much into it that we were building a team. Um, so that it was just a, a crusher, you know. One of the other things that I was struck by with the book as I was going through some of the, the old photos, um, you know, is some of the artists that were on the tour that aren't with us anymore. Yeah. You know, Paul Gray from Slipknot, Joey Jordanson from Slipknot. Like, yeah. it's so tragic that there's so many of the band members that just aren't here anymore. Yeah. Scott Weiland, Jeff Hanneman. Yeah. Yeah. I remember sitting in the bus with, uh, cause the, the, the band Slipknot, it was Sean Crahan and Paul and, and Jordan, 
you know, a Joey, were the founders. Uh, so when we met with the band's representatives, it was the three of them, you know, and they were just young guys, really excited to be on the road. And it was they were on the same sort of surreal path that the rest of us were on. And uh, they were just always really good to work with on the road. They were always reasonable. They were, you know, until they got on stage and then all hell broke. You know, <laughs> then it was completely fucked. No, seriously. I mean, it was just like it was some crazy shit. Yeah. <laughs> crazy shit every night. So um, it was really great being on the road with them. For the most part, the bands were really, especially the younger bands, were just so happy to be there on the road with Slipknot and Slayer. It's oh, just, yeah. you know, yeah, you're making dreams come true for fans, for the people who were on it. It was Slipknot's dream to be on a show with Metallica and Slayer. You know, like everybody's got their thing and, and Tattoo the Earth filled that for a lot of people. Yeah. Well, I'm excited that it's coming back. I'm very curious to see what you're teasing about next year, but I'm psyched to be at the show at the Palladium Outdoors in August. It's going to be awesome. I think it's going to be a, a great time. Uh, it's a really great lineup. We've got the tattoo artists. And and I think that, um, like I said, it's kind of a nostalgia show. And taking a look back at 20 years ago, the tattooing was illegal in Massachusetts. It's really hard to believe. It was so not was that weed. I know. <laughs> No, we live in a totally different world now. I know. It's, uh, it's. Uh, I mean, that part of it's amazing, too, to see what tattooing. And Worcester's a tattoo town. Yes, it is. I went into Off the Rails uh, last week, and, you know, everybody's got sleeves. If we were sitting there 20 years ago, I would have been the only one in that restaurant with a sleeve, with a visible tattoo. I remember like, meeting Des from Cold Chamber the first time, and he was the first person I ever met that had a tattoo on his face. Yeah. And I was like, how hardcore is this motherfucker? I was just at CVS and the pharmacist had a tattoo over here. Yeah. I mean, it's just, and, and Virgin Atlantic is now allowing their steward, their flight attendants to show their tattoos. The military. The military. So I think that when we did the show in Worcester, you know, they weren't going to let the fire department and police department get tattoos. Uh, initially and then they decided that they would when we did the first because i put on the first after the law change in 2001 i think you were part of that too the tattoo convention yeah at the dcu center yep that first convention and that was a really good show because we brought in paul booth just brought in the best artists in the world from all over the world and really showed people what it was about because yeah. there was no representation of what a tattoo shop should look like what a tattoo artist should be like what their work should be so that i always felt like we maybe got worcester on the right track um, and that it is a legitimate a art form that it is not what people think you know that it was yeah. this dark dirty dangerous place where you were going to get hepatitis and like yeah. only old salty sailors got them in strange ports it's like no it's it's expression it's yeah it's uh, it's listen. I was one of those people because you know I grew up with the Stones and the Who. If they had tattoos, I would have been into tattoos. Yeah, I did whatever they told me to do. <laughs> they weren't, and I just associated tattoos with bikers, and and you know that was it. I had that connotation. I didn't get my first tattoo till I was over thirty. Wow, and sober. Yeah, you know it was a it was a decision. My father had died. It was marking a place in time. I didn't know that it was going to turn into all of this. Um, but there's so many reasons to get them. And I think that one of the things I always loved about tattooing and tattoo conventions are the contests. 
Yeah. But like most contests, which is solely based on the beauty of the person, this is really based on the beauty of the work and how it fits with the body. It doesn't matter what you look like. And I just found it as a great equalizer that that's just a really cool thing about it is it just allows people to represent themselves and take control. I mean, I've, people have scars that they tattoo. You, you know, there's just so many levels and levels to it um, that it just means a lot of things to a lot of people. And, and I, hopefully we help that in a way um, to show what the artwork is like. And to me, the artwork is just. Oh, it's unbelievable. I can't believe it. Not only to, you know, it's one thing to work on a canvas, right? But to have the canvas moving, to have every one of them be different, to have to find a way to make the art fit in it. It's just a skill that I am so envious of because I just don't understand how they do it. I just look at a tattoo artist and I'm in awe. Yeah, well, it's a craft because you have to know how to apply it. You have to know how to use the machine and get the ink into the skin at the right level so it doesn't stay bumpy in the, you know. Yep. Um, and I know that what always drove the artist crazy was that, you know, they do this amazing sleeve and then some guys holding it out there at the window. And I would see Sean Vasquez guys coming in with their tattoo women with their tattoos and he's looking at it going, you got to put sunscreen. And like, yeah. this is my artwork. And you're you're in a show and it's on your back and you don't have a shirt on. So it's an unusual, it's an unusual art form, but it absolutely is an art form. And I think that was our goal when we started doing it was to elevate it to a level. And it seems to have, and now looking at what's happened the last 20 years. Oh, yeah. When I got my great. first one, my grandfather was a Navy veteran from World War II in Korea and he made it through two wars in the Navy and he never got a tattoo. And so the first one I got, I kind of got for him. Oh, nice. Yeah. So it's like they all have a story too, you know, even the ones you regret, they have a good story. Oh, yeah. No. And, you know, I remember just I'd be in like Aruba and I'd, you know, have my sleeve and some old lady would come up to me. I got to show you my piece and it's her grandchildren. <laughs> and I'm like, here I am. I'm trying to like have a drink and I've got some 80 year old woman showing me her piece. Yep. And I think that it just, I don't know, it's, it's, um, it's an unusual art form and it, it's powerful. Yeah. And the, the music connection and the, the tattoo connection, just that connection of the outsider, of second skin, you know, it's yep. just, it always spoke to me. And, and the fact that we were able to do it 20 years ago and maybe now continue it going forward. Yeah. Sort of like, I feel like maybe Tattoo the Earth is, is coming to take its place at the head of like the body art revolution that it kind of helped kickstart. Absolutely. And I, I feel that way about it. My goal back then was to turn it into the biggest lifestyle brand in the world. Like the tour was just the beginning and I, I feel the exact same way right now. And so does everybody else. It's just so fucking great. Well, if you want to get nostalgic caravan of pain, the true story of the tattoo, the earth tour is available. You can order the book and read about all the craziness before you get ready to go to the revamp tattoo, the earth at the palladium, August 27th. I will be there. I'll be signing books. And uh, I will not be hiding in the tour bus like I was 20 years ago. I will actually <laughs> bring in my wife and kid. and I'm going to have a good time. You know, I think it's going to be a great day. I look forward to seeing you. Thank you so much for hanging out with me today. Yeah, thank you, Kara. I really appreciate it. It was you great seeing it. you. Today. All right. I'll see you soon. See you. Bye-bye. There he is, author and brainchild of the Tattoo the Earth Tour and Festival, Scott Alderman. You can check out his book, Caravan of Pain, the true story of the Tattoo the Earth Tour by clicking the link in the show notes of this podcast. 
There's tons of links there. You can find all of Scott's links. You can find all of mine. And there's a link to buy tickets to the Tattoo the Earth show at the Palladium in Worcester on August 27th. There's also a link for this episode's corresponding playlist. I make a playlist for every full-length episode of the Mistress Carrie podcast. And normally it features all of the musicians' music and all of the other music that we talked about in the episode. This time around, it is filled with amazing memories of the Tattoo the Earth tour and, of course, all of the other songs we talked about. If you liked what you heard, don't forget to like and subscribe to the Mistress Carrie podcast. New full-length episodes come out every Wednesday. Plus, every weekday, you get the sit rep. The Situation Report is all of your rock news, music headlines, and industry info in less than five minutes. Plus, you never know when we're going to release a bonus episode. You can join me live every Tuesday night at 8.30 Eastern for my video show, Cocktails in the War Room, on Facebook. The Mistress Carrie Podcast, a proud member of the Pantheon Podcast Network.